Gurave Gaurachandraya Radhikaya Tadalaya Krishnaya Krishna Bhaktaya Tad Bhaktaya Namo Namaha <coughs> So, good morning to all of you. Welcome. We are continuing with our series of Radical Personalism. Today is meeting number 12. And will be the second meeting of this sub-series, so to say, inside the series on Guru Tattva. Second part on Guru Tattva. Today we will be speaking about is Sri Guru fallible or infallible? But as usual, a brief recap first of last Tuesday's uh, meeting, where we will be we were speaking about first part of Sri Guru Tattva, talking about the difference between Guru with small G and Sri Guru with capital S and G, capital letters. So we connected also this series of talks with the previous series where we were talking about non-dualism, non-dual thinking, how Guru Tattva is ideally to be approached first from a non-dual foundation, understanding how Guru is one. There's not only There's no more than one Guru, which is, expresses itself in a multiply, multiplicity of forms. Vyasti Samasti. Samasti Guru refers to the universal one aspect of Guru, Krishna himself, God himself, the agency of divine revelation. And Vyasti refers to the individual, the microcosmic, not the macrocosmic, but the microcosmic representation of the agency, the agent and the agency, so to say. So while Guru is one again, this divine principle, unified, impossible to separate, will express itself in different, not through, not only through different people, but in different degrees, mm-hmm. to different representatives, so to say. And the Guru, in that sense, is God in a representational sense, not in every sense of the term. Then we also explained, regarding the worship of Guru, what is actually worshipable in the Guru? What's the thing that we should be worshipping? Why a Guru is worshipable especially worshipable in connection to other people. And we spoke about, of course, that in connection to his or her inner world of bhakti. How much the guru is, how much the principle of Sri Guru, which will be another word to refer to the Samasti Guru, how much Sri Guru is expressing through Guru. That's what we are worshipping, the degree of representation, so to say, because of the inner bhakti of the person. If we separate that and we just worship Guru, who knows for which reason, that may fall in the category of idolatry or personality cult or who knows what. We also spoke about how Guru is our own potential appearing in front of us uh, and how the Guru is personifying an, an example to be followed and giving us an ideal to be worshipped. So we also make the difference, try to follow the person, worship the ideal, so to say. Uh, and of course, having our own potential in front of us on a daily basis, that may be a little demanding. And in some cases, women unconsciously may resort to ways of not having to deal with such a demanding prospect uh, and try not to do all that we have to do on our part as disciples. And sometimes that takes the form of over-absolutizing the guru and so on. And one of these forms, as we mentioned, was claiming that every single person serving in the capacity of guru must necessarily be Nityasiddha, an eternal liberated being, or Nutam Bhagavat, the devotee of the highest order, 
which as we mentioned is not something mentioned in Shastra and it's not something that we can even prove through some specific litmus test or something. So, <clears throat> of course, when we say gurus need to see that, we refer samasti gurus need to see that. But Vyasti guru, hopefully, sometimes can be Nutan Bhagavat, necessarily, generally, they are not need to see that. But in some cases, they are not even see that. Maybe or sadhana siddha, or maybe an advanced sadaka. Srila Prabhupada will say even a Kanista Dikari, he went to that extreme. <laughs> but a sincere person, of course. But the point is... It's, it, that we shouldn't feel the need to over-absolutize this principle as a way of who, to abate who knows what. Also, when the Shastra speaks about the Guru, we mentioned how, because someone may argue, but Shastra speaks about Guru in absolute terms. So it makes us think that probably the Guru is always in the highest possible platform. But actually, we mentioned how when the Guru, when the Shastra speaks about Guru, it, it does so generally from an idealistic perspective, like assuming that the person serving as guru is representing the guru principle in the best possible way. From that place, the Shastra says all that it says about guru, and from that place it demands or, or calls for a reciprocal treatment from a disciple, full surrender. And not only regarding to Sri Guru, the Shastra speaks like this, speaks about, I don't know, Sadhu Sangha, only one moment, gives all perfection in Sadhu Sangha, only half a sea level of the holy name, gives you everything. So Shastra speaks from that place. Now, if all the ideal elements are in place, this, has, this can happen. The potential is there. So this, the Shastra, in other words, takes for granted that the Guru will be fully um, genuine, so to say, but also takes for granted that we as readers understand from which place the Shastra is talking to us. <laughs> so from that place the Shastra speaks about Guru, from that place the Shastra calls for our surrender. But the point is, if this is not the case, if someone representing the Guru principle is not being an ideal representative, then we should surrender to that representation proportionately, accordingly. On the level of the representation, there should be a corresponding level of surrender. Uh, if this is not in place, this type of combination demanding ex excessive surrender while the Guru is not fully representing the principle can open the door for different types of abuse and confusion. Mm. So that's a brief summary of what we saw yesterday. <clears throat> Let's go to today's topic again. Briefly explaining uh, today's title is Sri Guru Fallible or Infallible. Let's begin with that introduction. So please continue bearing in mind what we talked last class, we just summarized, that when we speak about Sri Guru, we are referring to the Samasti principle as being represented by a Vyasti Guru, the Guru with a small g. Bear that in mind because I will be referring today and in next class as well. And the representation will be gradual. So in that sense, we could say that if the Guru is a fully transparent surrender representative of, of Sri Krishna, then the Guru can be rightfully called Sri Guru. We already mentioned that point. Or the degree of, the pre of representation coming from that Guru will be called Sri Guru, if you want to put it in even in more gray terms. <laughs> so if we want to, in this case, to think of, of a Guru, an individual Guru as fully representing Sri Guru, and therefore called Sri Guru, Sometimes we hear, okay, that person, Sri Guru, is infallible because he fully represents Krishna. One name of Krishna is Achyuta, which means the infallible one. 
So if the Krishna is infallible and the Guru fully, a full, truly genuine Guru fully represents the infallible one, then by extension, he or she may have to share the same qualities probably. Infallibility, blanket infallibility, probably blanket omniscience. So we'll try to address some of these things, not only today, but in another case. Of course, first we will say, well, in some cases, the Guru won't be fully representing the department of Sri Guru. So in that case, that's not ideal, but it can happen. So in that case, we may see forms of fallibility in, in that person. But again, the question is, what about a fully transparent surrender devotee? Is that person fallible on some way? Is totally infallible? Or maybe it's both fallible and infallible in certain way, but not in every way. So today we will mostly address this particular uh, issue, so to say, related to Guru Tattva. And for that I will be mostly resorting to one book that was published recently by a devotee friend of mine, Radha Madhav Prabhu, a book called Perfect Imperfection. So somehow this class may be also a trailer, <laughs> promotional trailer to that book, which of course I recommend for whoever will like to read, it's available in Amazon and other places. Perfect Imperfection, which speaks a lot about this idea of fallibility and infallibility in Guru. So let's begin with, or continue with the next section, where we will be talking about how Sri Guru's infallibility is not the same as Krishna's infallibility. And so there will be a way to speak about the two of them as infallible, but not necessarily in exactly the same way. So, of course, let's begin by saying the Guru is not totally infallible, like Krishna is. Again, be careful with making a parallel between Guru and Krishna in an absolute way, which runs very close to Mayavad. And we will share examples of how this is so. Uh, and again, I mentioned this, we mentioned this because sometimes we hear some extreme statements about the Guru's infallibility and to the point of Guru cannot make any single mistake in any sense of the term. Whomever is serving in that post, no matter the Adhikar, but if he's posted as a Guru, it must be perfect in absolute terms. And again, some problems have come in our, through our Gaudiya timeline because of this. So again, this is not the case. But also, at the same time, we could say if, if a guru is, again, fully surrendered, in this case, I'm referring this direction, even if that person may have some fallibility on some level, as we will see, that person will have infallible bhakti, through which he will basically bind Krishna. Krishna is the infallible one, Achyuta, and Achyuta is bind, bound by the infallible bhakti of Sri Guru. So even if we'll see, even if a pure devotee can commit some mild mistakes on, on a deeper level, that bhakti is such that the infallible one is captured by that person. So there is infallibility in terms of inner purity and inner bhakti in the case of a pure representative to the point that the infallible one is controlled by that. So, but what we say also that the infallibility of Sri Guru won't be the same as Krishna's infallibility. And with this we may we refer that the Guru may commit what we may call and rather Madhav calls mild mistakes. We need also to make some separation here between mild mistakes and grave mistakes. So a mild mistake will be a mistake com committed by a very deep person, high guru, which don't challenge their uh, his her inner purity, inner standing. While on the other side we can speak about grave mistakes, 
which do indeed affect uh, the purity, the inner devotional standing of a devotee, and which in this case won't be committed by a pure representative acting as Sri Guru, but from a other devotee or even a Vyasti Guru who is not totally advanced. So again, we have a nuanced scenario. Don't try to make all things one. So in this case, it's important to recognize that if a Vyasti Guru, not too high in this case, commits some grave mistake, this doesn't mean that the infallible Samasti Guru principle is at fault or is compromised. The integrity of the Samasti Guru is not compromised by agent's misbehavior, so to say. The agency remains unaffected, so to say, by that. Mm-hmm. So, of course, if we discover some grave mistake in a Biasti Guru, it's important to, to bear this in mind, because if not, I mean, the faith in the Samasti Guru principle may, may be affected. So in that case, it is recommended, okay, if a Biasti Guru is committing a grave mistake, we can take shelter in the Samasti Guru principle while proceeding accordingly. We'll continue speaking about that later. Remember, when we say Sri Guru, we are speaking about someone, an individual who is beyond great mistakes, about Samasti Guru, or we are referring by Sri Guru to an individual who is beyond any grave mistake. Uh, well, Biasti Gurus may be on that level, but Biasti Gurus may not necessarily fully represent Sri Guru. I may commit grave mistakes. Mm-hmm. So, sorry to repeat over and over again these points, but just to make the terms enter. <laughs> so in relation to these two types of mistakes, mild mistakes, grave mistakes, again, we, we may also speak about corresponding types of infallibility in the Guru. Hmm? On one side, the Guru will express a fully genuine Guru, will represent infallibility, as we mentioned, in devotional purity, in inner standing. That person will be fully surrendered, and, and Sri Guru agency will express through him or her and on another side, we have infallibility in external conduct, but not necessarily the latter will be always present, in, even in a high personality. And by this, mean, I mentioned some mild mistakes may be there in the conduct or, or some, whatever. We will see examples of that. But those mild mistakes won't, again, compromise the first infallibility, which is in terms of inner purity. And again, we should be able to separate these two because by understanding that the guru can make mild mistakes, such recognition, if addressed properly, will never result in less faith. But by properly addressing it will result in a more realistic, mature, accommodating faith, if you will, human-like as well. <laughs> so we could say that, again, if... If a guru is deeply surrendered, proportionately to how surrendered a guru is, or not only a guru, anyone, our mistakes won't compromise our devotional uh, integrity. We could say that. Now, there may be mild mistakes, but the inner surrender will protect us with, from grave mistakes. And in that sense, we could say that the only real mistake is not to surrender, basically. <laughs> And not to fail in this or that. Because if we are internally surrendered, fully, sincerely surrendered, Krishna will take that in consideration. Everything else will be something temporary, if you will, that he will accommodate. Mm-hmm. And remember, when we say f- to be fully surrendered, this is not like one act performance. This is something gradually to be attained. Mm-hmm. So we, this is not something to get neurotic about either. 
I have to be fully surrendered, I have to be fully surrendered. It's a process. So let me share one verse from the Bhagavad, 11 Canto, chapter 5, verse 42, where this is clearly mentioned. It's a, kind of somehow a parallel to the famous Apichetsurachero verse from the Bhagavad Gita. It is said, one who has thus given up all other engagements and has taken full shelter at the lotus feet of Hari, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, is very dear to the Lord. Indeed, if such a surrendered soul accidentally commits some sinful activity, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is seated within everyone's heart, immediately takes away the reaction to such sin. So again, here there are things that we have to consider. The verse says someone who has taken full shelter and someone who accidentally commits something. We are not talking about someone who repeatedly, consciously is engaging in something, but accidentally, while having taken full shelter. So these two things put the rest of the verse in, in, in context. No? It's not referring to someone acting in a premeditated way, in a repeated way, not surrender, and so on. Even Chaitanya Bhagavad, interestingly, mentioned that Uttam Bhagavatas, of course, there are different levels of them, so we may say maybe someone with not the highest level of Uttam, Uttam, can at rare times can commit some immoral activity even. Like again, very accidentally, as a result of past samskars, Krishna's arrangement, Chaitanya Bhagavad 3635 says that, Garhita Karayadi Someone with Mahadikar, with great Adikar, sometimes may engage in some activity accidentally. Again, not premeditated, continuously, repeatedly, but some previous samskars still remaining, or sometimes even <clears throat> Krishna's arrangement, like the famous example of Bharat Maharaj attaching to the deer and, and all that. He was such a personality, Bhava Bhakti and more, how you will get attached to a deer. So commentators, so that was Krishna's arrangement to increase his longing and attain the ultimate goal. So we have to be careful not to judge them by that specific situation, but put everything in the bigger picture. So let's share some, some examples. For example, when we say, what's a grave mistake? What's a mild mistake? Now, a grave mistake could be, for example, uh, sexual abuse. For To give an example, which only is not only papa or material sin, but it's also aparad if you direct, especially if you direct that to Vaishnavas or Vaishnavis, because Vaishnava, one of the forms of Vaishnava aparad is physical violence or mental violence to a Vaishnava, and sexual abuse is both physical and mental violence. So this is a way of speaking about Vaishnava aparad, which is very delicate and can affect our inner standing. That's a grave mistake in that category. So again, a guru may fall on that accidentally uh, and not repeatedly and in a premeditated way. With this, I'm not justifying the first case, <laughs> but I'm making a difference also between the two. So if that happens, even accidentally, the person should fully acknowledge that, repent about that, and take the corresponding measures uh, that should be applied to each one of the specific cases. Again, what to speak if that same situation is going on repeatedly for decades, uh, the person is abusing more than one people, many people, some of them underage, and on top of that, the person is denying all res any responsibility. Then we have another degree of <laughs> grave mistake, so to say. So I say all this to see that even one same, the same grave mistake can be expressed in so many ways and levels and different measurements have to be taken accordingly.
which of course, when I say grave mistake, again, I'm not limiting this to sexual abuse. It can play out in many other forms of subtle abuse as well, like manipulation or dismissal of of a person and dehumanizing treatment, ostracizing defamation, other stances which clearly will compromise one's integrity, especially if you see that there is a repeated pattern of those things that they don't happen only once accidentally. Mm. And in relation to all these different forms of abuse, sometimes I've heard devotees saying, like, in relation to this, mm. well, my guru did those mistakes, but my guru helped me for so many years. So because of that, I, I've decided to continue supporting my guru, uh, although I know he's not acting correctly now. But the point is, if, he, if that person helped you so many years, which is great, and now he's doing wrong, and you know that the way of supporting him or showing your affection is by telling that person that he's or she's doing wrong <laughs> and not by supporting the wrongdoing. That's not reciprocating what, what you have received from the guru. Mm -hmm. You follow my point? So that that's the, the ideal way of supporting that person. It's, it's good to be grateful from what, what had received from the guru, but there's corresponding ways to express gratitude according to the circumstance. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, some notions on, on possibilities of gray mistakes. Of course, there may be many others. I'm going to mild mistakes. Hmm. Uh, one example that, that Radha Madhav Prabhu shares in his book is that, for example, which is an interesting one, that our mostly our entire Gaudiya's lineage uh, has been mistaken for centuries in that recent, for most of us, during decades or centuries, we thought, the appearance of Radha Kunda is on Bahulastami, which falls on Kartik. But recent years ago, it has been proved that it's not on that day, according to some purport on the Bhagatam by Jiva Goswami. It's a Chaitra Purnim, which is in March, April, not in October, November. So we have all our Acharyas and great enlightened personalities having celebrating that on the wrong day. <laughs> but no problem. <laughs> Inner integrity is not has not been compromised in those cases. That's a mild mistake. Again, a guru may misspell a word when writing or forget one verse, trying to quote the verse, and it's okay, no problem. Life goes on. So, and again, there are accounts of pure devotees making mild, mild mistakes throughout the whole, all our shastra. It's not just there's one example. So that account also is clearly demonstrating that. A pure devotee is never meant to be depicted as infallible in every sense of the term. Again, if he's a pure devotee, he is or she is infallible in terms of inner purity, but not the person is not free to engage in some of these mistakes. Mm -hmm. Also, another example given by Radha Madhava is of entire lineages committing mistakes and nonetheless remaining um, worshipable for us. For example, the line of Madhubacharya, which the Gaudiya Sampradaya is connected with somehow they reject the validity of Brahma Vimohan Lila. You may remember when we gave the Brahma Vimohan Lila series. They do not accept that. They say that's an interpolation. So for us we think the whole lineage is wrong. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that they became bogus or they are now rejected because of that or something. Indeed, we can go to our own lineage, the Gaudiya Sampradaya which is a lineage which fully revolves around the Srimad Bhagavatam as a center half on, on scripture. And for us, what's the Bhagavatam? The Bhagavatam is Vyasadeva's own critique to his own words. 
So here we have the author of a book who accepted that what he wrote before was mm, some, some form of fallibility, if you will, and the upgrading of that becomes the Bhagavatam. So our lineage is a result of that, if you will. <laughs> and the Bhagavatam itself, we could say, well, okay, the Bhagavatam is the upgraded perfect form. Yes, but also in terms of mild mistakes, the Bhagavatam itself acknowledges it possesses them. Famous verse that Bad Bisargo Janatagaviplabo just mean pretty shlokam. Avadavatiapi. So Avadavatiapi means there may be some mild mistakes here in the Bhagavatam, some meter issues and some details. But despite that, the Bhagavatam is worshipped by great saintly personalities. Or we could say even not only despite that, but because of that. Because because the Bhagavatam, by possessing some mild mistakes and remaining worshipable, shows to us there is a place for imperfection in such a way that it can add to the charm of the equation. Because the Bhagavatam ultimately is pointing to where? Krishna Lila. And Krishna Lila is divine imperfect, as we mentioned in one series of lectures we gave. There's no other book that shows this combination, Krishna Lila and its apparent imperfection. So in this connection, let's go to, to another section where we will speak about the charm of mild mistakes, how they, both in Sri Guru as well as in God himself. So to, to see how there's place for mild mistakes without any deep compromising, even in the life of the Absolute. So what to speak in the life of his, her representative. So as we explained in, in a series of lectures that I think I gave 2020, Kartik, Divine Imperfect, that was on, on Damodar Lila. So that's somehow a trailer to this series for those who will like to, who do not, who do not have, do not find my lectures long enough. <laughs> you can go to that series, uh, somehow complementary. So there we mention how limitation Krishna is being tied there. Remember, very, very symbolic. The absolute is being tied to mortar. So limitation, he's limited, he's tied. But limitation doesn't compromise the freedom of the absolute. Krishna is not less free by being tied but actually more free because he's experiencing more love. Love is the ultimate freedom. So there we, that we find in Damodar Lila, God being tied, but such situation is adding charm, is increasing the affection, loving interaction between Yashoda and Krishna. So if affection increases, freedom increases because love is the ultimate freedom. But at the same time, there's limitation and imperfections on, on some apparent level. But there's nourishing the charm and the freedom and the love. So it's interesting. There's place for limitation and imperfection, not only in us, again, but in God Himself. Brother Mado quotes the famous Latin idea of errare humanum est. To err is human. And he adds, well, in this case, in the context of Damodar Lila, we could say errare divinum est. And to err is divine. And it applies to Krishna, it adds charm. So, so in the same way that, that Krishna's apparent mistakes, again, he's, he's a liar, he's a thief, he's a womanizer. <laughs> but all those quote-unquote mistakes make his pastimes even more sweeter. The same criteria can be applied to the shortcomings of, of a guru. Again, not to justify anything, but just speaking in terms of mild mistakes and proper surrender in place. And if we have the proper vision as well, no? Radha Mada will call the proper vision the perfect, imperfect vision. When you allow imperfection in the context of perfection. So in that case, 
we will see one Krishna's apparent defects are given rise, he will say interestingly, by Krishna behaving himself imperfectly, quote unquote, that gives the devotees, his devotees, the chance to express unconditional love to him. Which unconditional love means I love you despite your imperfections. Mm -hmm. And of course, the opposite is true. Mm -hmm. When we express our mistakes, that gives Krishna the chance to express unconditional love to us. Because if we are perfect and someone loves us because we are perfect, that's not unconditional love. And we know that God loves us unconditionally, which means despite our imperfections or even because of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the same happens, this is reciprocal in Lila. Krishna may exhibit some so-called imperfections and, the, and that gives the devotees a chance to express unconditional love. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have a very wrong idea about, about God. We think, okay, God is displeased with our mistakes. We cannot fail at anything. We have to be perfect. I'm not promoting with this, make mistakes on purpose to endear yourself to Krishna. <laughs> but I'm saying that in the case at least of surrendered devotees, we see how these mild mistakes can even like accelerate Krishna's love for them. It's acting as udipana, some stimulant, if you will. Just like the example is given, the, the example of the mother. The mother sees the child making a mistake, and that accelerates her batsalia, if you will. Her batsalia ocean is swelling, <laughs> overflowing. Again, because the idea affection, rather mother mentioned affection is characterized, but affection wants to prove its own excellence of being unconditional. That's, that's the nature of, of, of unconditional love, of, of effect of pure love. It wants to prove its own excellence in the context of being unconditional. It has an appetite, inherent appetite, appetite sorry, he will say, to, to be tested. So through the tests, unconditional love proves itself unconditional. But for that, you need tests and obstacles which nourish the unconditionality of, of that love. Which again, nothing of this is to be taken as Padmanava Swami encouraging the intentional committing of mistakes. <laughs> we are not promoting that here. My, but, but actually we are sharing this since this will allow for less stigmatized, <clears throat> more harmonious, more integrative perspective of, on, on mistakes in our devotional life. They have a place, and it, not only they have a place and they are not to be demonized, but they can even nourish love in Lila. So they have a place in eternity, not only in our experience as sadhakas. So that's the nature of unconditional love. We already talked about that a little bit in, I think, some of our class on vulnerability. Mm -hmm. That if I love you because you are perfect, my love is conditional. And I am a conditioned soul. Conditioned soul means conditional love. Mm -hmm. So-called love will be that in that case. But unconditional will be, despite any condition, and imperfections, especially included in this list, I nonetheless love you. And that's how love is, God is loving each of us, as we already mentioned. And that's how we should be willing to reciprocate to Him accordingly. Again, we are not thinking, okay, I will love God despite His imperfections. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but in Lila, it plays out like that. Krishna seems, appears to have lots of imperfections, and nobody seems to. I mean, they notice them, but nobody seems to be affected in their love for him. Or, or they seem to be affected in the sense that they love him more. So Krishna Lila is validating, so to say, imperfection in, in a healthy way. So in, in, in the, 
we already mentioned in the previous class that if a guru demands an extreme level of surrender for a disciple, while the guru is not a full representative of God, that can end up in abuse. Or if we worship guru without actually worshiping the inner bhakti of the guru, we, that can end up in a personality cult, so to say. Uh, but similarly, we could say in this connection, if we believe that the guru has to be infallible in every single sense of the term, that will create a very artificial uh, status quo for the leader, for the guru, for the one acting as guru, a very superficial scenario and a very over-idealized uh, approach from us, and potentially a very dehumanizing approach for disciples, which will end up in not a very, not in a very healthy relationship, basically. Hmm? So let's turn next to the next section, which is somehow connected with this myth, so to say, of infallibility. And another possible misunderstanding which be these ideas related to, which is Gurudev is omniscient. He knows everything in every single sense of the term. So let's go to the next section, which is Sri Guru does not possess blank omniscience like Krishna does. Again, Guru, Guru is infallible in certain way, but not like Krishna. We will see Guru can be omniscient in certain way, we will see, in a nuanced sense of the term, but not in a blanket way like Krishna is. So sometimes we hear devotees, again, over-glorifying their Guru. You can over-glorify their Guru. In one sense, you can never say enough about the glories of the Guru, but in another sense, you can over-glorify, like glorify the Guru outside of the proper mood and context. Like, for example, saying he's omniscient. That's too much. <laughs> I remember once I was with one devotee who told me, once my Guru Dev was giving a class and he asked me about the verse that he, 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 he said that he was not remembering. And I very quickly realized how he's testing me because actually he can never forget any verse because he's omniscient. And I was like, well, <laughs> I didn't say anything, but I didn't agree with that. It's not problem if your guru forgets one verse. Again, it's a mild mistake, which is not compromising the guru's integrity. Or sometimes the famous example of abuses going on in the guru call during Prabhupada's times in Iskon. And many thinking, oh, but Prabhupada is omniscient. So if he doesn't say anything, he knows, of course, because he's omniscient, but he doesn't do anything. Somehow he's approving that. Try to imagine which type of conclusion that is. But it's interesting because in one case he, he didn't know about the abuses, he was not omniscient, <laughs> but when he got to know, he immediately cancelled that whole project. So that showed not only that he does not support abuse, <laughs> but that he's not omniscient in, in this blanket sense of the term, and he's not a problem. Mm. So again, Guru is not omniscient, at least, at least not in the same way that Krishna is, and Shastri fully confirming this. For example, the main examples always cited is when Srila Rupa Goswami quotes in, in his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, he gives a list of 64 qualities in Krishna, like summarizing his unlimited qualities. And it is said the first 50 of those 64 can be found in a jiva or in a pure devotee to a minute extent. The first 50. So omniscience is in the list, but not in the first 50. It's 652. So it's outside of the scope of normal souls, so to say. Omniscience is quality 52, which is, it is said to be 
Peter present sometimes partially in Shiva, Mahadev. So we are not him, <laughs> just in case. But it is only fully exhibited in Krishna, in God. And this is also confirmed in many other places. Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur's commentary on Gita 18.16. For those who want further evidence, Bhaktivinoda Thakur's commentary on Gita 6.39 as well. Also, Radha Madhav Prabhu quotes one section from Harinam Chintamani, since we mentioned Bhaktivinoda Thakur, 15, chapter 15, verses 72-73, where Bhaktivinoda Thakur is speaking there how the Guru guides his disciple in ascertaining his or her Siddha Deha, or internal identity. Let me read the quote, which shows how the Guru is not omniscient. When the spiritual master is ascertaining the aspirant's pure devotional inclinations, the aspirant should also help the spiritual master by speaking his mind about his own preferences. As long as he has not clearly established the disciple's inclinations, the guru's directions are not flawless. Which again shows how it's not that the guru already knows who you are and all whatever you may be feeling. He needs your rapport and feedback. As long as that's not present, he may say or she may say something that is not infallible, so to say. <laughs> so in this way, the, the pure devotees are not omniscient, but they remain pure devotees. It's not that they are less pure devotees but not being omniscient. Of course, we could say they are omniscient in the sense that they are pure devotees, Krishna is in their heart, and by the inspiration of Krishna in the heart, they will know as much as it will be required in their service of Krishna. Krishna makes that point in the Gita, that Ami Buddhi Yogam Tam. From the heart, I give them the intelligence to come to me. So we could say in that sense, Krishna is in the heart. We already spoke that Paramatma is one aspect of the Guru, Chaitya Guru, for the devoted Paramatma is replaced by Krishna, so to say, but remains as Chaitya Guru in that function. So the relation between Guru and Paramatma is Veda Ved. It's not... It's, one and different. The two are guru, but it's not exactly the same. Paramatma is omniscient. Krishna is omniscient in the heart. Paramatma is the Samasti guru. Again, Krishna in the heart, fully omniscient. But the Vyasti guru, the representative, will be inspired by Krishna in the heart to know what it needs to be known. But it doesn't mean that he will know the number of the lottery or whatever. We shouldn't be playing lottery just in case. <laughs> So that's the idea, no? or we could say another way of speaking, because sometimes the scripture mentions something that make one think, oh, the guru is omniscient, the pure devotee knows everything, but what does it mean, the Shasta, when it says it knows everything? So that is, if pure devotee loves Krishna, and loving someone means knowing someone, and knowing Krishna means knowing everything, because Krishna is everything. So if you know Krishna, you know everything, because you love him. In that sense, they are omniscient. Mm -hmm. Scriptures say also just mean vignate sarvam, evam vignatam bhavati. That those types of lines. By knowing him, you know everything. Which means by loving Krishna, you know everything you need to know. It doesn't mean that you know every single detail of every aspect of existence. So in that sense, we could say the guru is omniscient. Not in every sense. So Krishna is omniscient. And in one sense, the Guru is Krishna, but as we mentioned, the Guru is Krishna in a representational sense. And don't forget the nuanced perspective. The Guru is the direct representation of Krishna's mercy. The Guru is to be honored equally as Krishna in that sense, as 
proportionately to the degree of representation, Yata, Devi, Tata, Guru, and so on. But again, if the Guru will be entirely non-different from Krishna, again, that's Mayabad, and that's why we do not offer in the altar, for example, tulsi lips on the feet of the Guru, but we offer them on the feet of Krishna. So there's a difference that we are making there, although we may say they are one in one sense. But again, fully one Guru and Krishna, so Krishna omniscient, Guru omniscient, that's Mayabad. Srila hmm. Prabhupada once said that, Radhamal quotes that, when Prabhupada talked to his <clears throat> his first disciple, called Dr. Acharya Prabhakar Misra, he said, only Mayabadi gurus claim to be omniscient and infallible. <laughs> the two things that we are trying to explain now, infallibility and omniscient. Only Mayabadi gurus claim that. And surely we don't want to be labeled <laughs> in that category. So in, in conclusion to this section, we could say that the Guru knows a pure devotee, again a fully representative acting as Guru, will know fully the heart of a disciple because Krishna will inspire him from the heart to know our heart. In that sense, the Guru is omniscient. But also we could say, extend the idea to say if Krishna wants, Krishna can also inspire any other person to suddenly know our heart or to represent him. Also, that's a point. Now, the Guru is the very thick and condensed portal and representation of God in our lives, but it doesn't mean that nobody else can represent Krishna's will in our lives. It can, if he, Krishna wants, any single atom can do that. So we should be also careful to remain open to learn even from the clerk and the grocery store or anyone here and there. So again, the, the Guru is the presence and the voice of Krishna in our lives, which is specifically embodied in a particular way, but not to the exclusion of that same principle of divine representation being played out in any other person, in any other situation. Because if we over-insist only the Guru, we make it too localized. So let's be careful with that as well. <clears throat> let's go to the next section, which may take us a little bit more time than the other ones because it requires so and it will be collect called collective neurosis through the weaponization of apparat mm -hmm. you may imagine where we are going now <laughs> in connection to what we talked of course don't lose sight of the context mm -hmm. and I, i'm saying that because sometimes the acknowledgement of any mistake or any fallibility or non-omniscience from the part of the guru sometimes is discouraged in Gaudiya society on the plea that such a thing is tantamount with aparat. Now, if you see any mistake, if you point that the guru is not omniscient, then you are an offender. You are an aparati. An aparat is one of the most weaponized and abused words in the Gaudiya glossary, if not the most. <laughs> in the top five for sure. I remember once Richard Rohr mentioned that since the, the term God has been so much weaponized and misused for millennia, he was referring to Christians. He said, I think we should stop using the word God for 50 years so we can get rid from all the samskars that we, associations we will make with that word and get the wrong idea about that. Mm -hmm. So the same criteria could be applied to the word apparat <laughs> in our Godia lingo. Mm -hmm. Many times we invoke the term without having a clue what it, ha what, what it actually means. Or we use it again 
as a as a weapon, not as a as something that should invoke the proper mood and spirit. Mm -hmm. So the point is that in that case, when apparatus is weaponized, everyone becomes afraid of becoming an apparati. An apparati is a heavy label in Gaudiya community. It's a whole heavy label. You are an apparati. For some, it even conveys the sense of you're trapped in that forever. There's no way of oh, he's an apparati. No? Like some eternal hell parallel or something. <laughs> And nobody wants to be labeled as an apparati. So it, it, the fear of apparat may paralyze you and you may and, and may paralyze your critical thinking as well. I'm seeing some abuse, but I won't say anything because I don't want to be an apparati. And in, in that case, you become an apparati by doing that, by becoming a passive consumer of abuse or even by being a witness to that some way or another without saying anything you engage in what we call sins of omission. You have sins of commission, someone is committing a sin and that has its own reaction, but you may be omitting a sin that someone else is committing. That's another form of being an accomplice to that. And that's a way of complacency, to think, I don't want to have an opinion on this particular situation, I don't want to pack judgments, I don't want to basically think for myself and hold myself accountable. That's actually the implication. But at least I'm not offensive because I'm not pointing to anyone. I'm not blaming anyone. So we may feel okay with ourselves as a form of complacency. That's a heavy form of conformity and mediocrity. To think I'm not offensive, I'm not offending anyone. Probably it's not the case if we have that stance. It may feel comfortable, of course, <laughs> But actually, this stance is a form of sin, according to Shastra. Chaitanya Charita, let me share, Chaitanya Charitamrita, 2590. I'm not making up this idea, that's in Shastra. This verse says, A person who knows things as they are, and still does not bear witness, becomes involved in sinful activities. So it's, I mean, it's common sense, which is generally quite uncommon, so we are trying to invoke that uncommon common sense. So if you know that something wrong is going on and you don't bear witness to that, you become implicated in that period. Mm. But sometimes devotees remain silent out of fear, mm. fear of committing offense, many other fears. In this case, we were talking about apparat, the fear of apparat. And they mistakenly think, oh, any type of criticism will be necessarily apparat. Mm. But that's not the case. Many times silence is apparat. We are seeing silence can be crime, <laughs> uh, and we may not know when we are engaging in that. We may be thinking, "I'm very pure, I'm very innocent, I'm not criticizing anyone, free from apparat." That's not necessarily the case. And sometimes, uh, pointing to something that is wrong may not only not be apparat, but may be a way of showing care and affection for that person, acting as the real well-wisher of that person. Hmm? So we, in other words, we may camouflage our silent apparat by pointing to a false one outside of us. Hmm? Follow. We, we may say like, no, they are go doing offense. That's another case. So I don't have to, to deal with whatever I may be doing. So many options are there in this scenario. <clears throat> so apart from accusing other quote-unquote apparatus so we don't have to with our own mess at home and unresolved issues, Sometimes comes this classical accusation that if someone sees a mistake and points to that, 
even with a healthy spirit, someone will accuse that person, oh, you are puffed up because you think yourself better than the person you are accusing, you are seeing this mistake. And if you reply saying, no, I'm not puffed up, they will say, oh, that's your denial of being puffed up is a symptom of being puffed up. <laughs> or if someone says, you are puffed up, and I say, yes, I'm puffed up. Oh, you are puffed up then. You, you can see anything wrong in it. You cannot ascertain anything because you are puffed up. So you have this circular reasoning where there's no chance of any dialogue whatsoever. Or if you mention some objective criticism, some people will say, oh, you are projecting your own situation onto others. That's a, like a mirror game. And if you say, no, no, that's that's not the case. No, I don't know. Someone is abusing someone sexually. No, I'm not abusing someone sexually. That's the situation. And say, no, no, I'm not projecting. And the person say, you are you see, you're in total denial of how you are projecting everything onto the environment. So these types of uh, nonsense mechanisms. I mean, it can happen. You can be projecting something. You can be in denial, but it doesn't mean that any criticism is showing that. So this type of criticism just stop any form of real dialogue to happen, basically. Uh, and many times when someone accuses others, or you are being puffed up, also these people many times have a very limited idea of how humility is to be expressed. So they think to be humble is to be like this or whatever. <laughs> to not criticize is to be humble. So whatever doesn't fit into my idea of humility must be you are puffed up. So do you follow the idea? Whatever doesn't fit my own parameters of how humility should play out, the only option is that then you must be puffed up because you are not acting as I think humility should play itself out. Or accusing someone sometimes of you are not surrendered. but some, Or you are an operati. When we throw the finger like that, sometimes we, we have our own idea of what surrender should look like. And it's a very monochromatic, limited one. We may have a very fixed notion and it, all that speaks more not so much about the other, but our own structures. Mm. And it's not speaking about if the person is humble, surrender, apparati or not. <laughs> so to determine if someone is actually surrendered, uh, humble or not, we have to enter into the inner intention of the person, not merely judging the external packaging of how that expresses itself. Mm. So anyhow, out of fear of this apparat, this neurosis that sometimes is invoked through the weaponization of this term, people sometimes prefer not to say anything, to look in another direction, not to be offensive, but that allows abuse to continue without any form of um, correction. Or sometimes in the name of not being offensive, we end up being extremely diplomatic in our relationship with others because you don't want to offend anyone. So you become very politically correct, very diplomatic, very calculative, calculative in how you relate with anyone or everyone. So you don't want to commit up or even if you know the person is doing this, but I don't want to be apparatus. So everything becomes very superficial, basically. Hmm? But the point is that the word apparat or another word for apparat is ninda. Ninda doesn't mean to criticize because there is place to criticize in a healthy way. Ninda means slandering, abusing, blaspheming, that's apparat, that's ninda. Constructive criticism is something completely different. Ninda or apparat is clearly motivated by wrong feelings, by wrong hearts. So that's apparat. Apparat means 
against aparada, against love, that which goes against love, if you will. So it doesn't refer to point to constructive criticism pointed with a healthy spirit. So aparada or ninda, in other words, could be defined as finding faults with the wrong heart, ill with ill motivation, so to say. But something very very different will be seeing faults without the attitude of finding faults. Rather, Mada makes a difference. One thing is to be a fault finder, and another to fault, find faults is one thing. To see faults is another thing. Mm-hmm. So to see faults that happen to occur, and you have some discernment, <laughs> uh, and you have to discern anukulas and kalpa, particularly Arjuna, what's favorable, what's unfavorable. Uh, showing that, pointing to that in a healthy way, that's a form of affection, as we say, of care, of concern. And again, trying not to see any mistake like in a forced way and superficially, like trying to imitate an Uttam Bhagavat who sees Krishna everywhere and doesn't see a defect in anyone. That's a form of premature transcendence, what we may call. And, and that makes no sense for someone who is not in that. That's imitation, basically. And that will create just further disturbance in society and opens the door for an ending of use. <clears throat> And sometimes we find in mature devotees saying things like, again, don't criticize anyone. I'm playing here the devil's advocate back and forth. <laughs> Some trending slogans of devotees, Radha Madhava invokes this one, like, don't criticize anyone, otherwise the person's bad qualities will be transferred to you. Hmm? So don't be a fault, don't criticize anyone. Hmm? But again, he said, that if you follow common sense, in this case, if someone is a child abuser, and I'm pointing to a child abuser, that, according to this slogan, means I will become a child abuser immediately by pointing that, because the fault has been transferred. So now you have to take care of, be careful with me. <laughs> Which, of course, doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't mean that by pointing to a mistake, uh, the thing will, will come to you. The, trans- the transfer of sin happens uh, if you criticize, uh, if someone maybe does something wrong, but you criticize with the envious heart, bad attitude, you may acquire part of that. <laughs> but if that's coming from a constructive criticism spirit, that's a show of affection again. So again, we shouldn't criticize out of envy. We shouldn't criticize with ill motives, with a wrong heart. But friendly criticism <clears throat> is not only legal and allowed, but totally necessary. <laughs> For any sincere sadhaka, you need to have that discernment. Rupa Goswami, in fourth verse of Sikshasaka, Upadisambrita, he refers to that as pretty lakshanam, as an expression of love. To reveal the mind in confidence to others and to hear from others in confidence. That implies also finding faults and sharing constructive criticism. Because if, if, you as a, if we as a society forbid all forms of criticism are banned from the Gaudiya society, stigmatized criticism, which is even worse, the society is totally backwards and it, it runs closer and closer to a cult, more and more, and closer and closer to a totalitarian regime. Nobody can say anything. Nobody can criticize this or that. And there is an interesting quote in this connection by Bhaktinath Thakur, one essay he wrote called Vaishnav Ninda, where he speaks about the place for constructive criticism. So let me share it with you. He says, Provided one has the right motive, 
The scriptures have not condemned a careful analysis of someone's faults. Proper motive is of three types, desiring the welfare of the other person, desiring the welfare of the world, and desiring one's own welfare. The tucker, then, uh, the, that's the end of the quote. No? So that makes very clear. There's place for that. And Bhaktino Thakur then assumes, in all these cases, if you analyze, analyze the faults of other person, even a pure devotee, mild mistakes, remember, can be, that will be an auspicious act, he will say. Provided you have the correct heart, which again, you, you are not to take that part lightly either. <laughs> so there is place for constructive criticism. I remember some years ago, the idea came to mind, okay, let's, Let's start with some few steps to engage in constructive criticism. So four steps came to mind. No? Four do's, to do's. So you can warrant your engaging constructive criticism, which will be the following. The first is, if you are about to share constructive criticism to others, first make sure you are not projecting onto others your own faults, as we mentioned. That can be possible. Hmm? So you do not end up criticizing in others some, something that is actually in yourself. So first step, make sure that's not the case. Second, once you make that's not the case, and what you are about to criticize something present in the other person, first appreciate positive things in that person, things that that person is doing nicely and that you are inspired by. So you are not only seeing the negative in that person. So that's creating the, a better framework. Then the third, when you are opening your mouth and sharing the, criti the critique, make sure that you are sharing the critique with the intention of actually helping the person you are criticizing, with a constructive intention. Because you may be accurate, he did wrong, but where is your heart in sharing that? And finally, after you opened your mouth and closed it, after you shared the criticism, that's not the end of the story. Then you have to commit yourself to accompany, support, and help that person you critiqued to overcome whatever you pointed that the person should overcome. There's a commitment there. It's not that I criticize you, so good luck with that one. No, that's what you have to change. See you when, call me when you have changed that. <laughs> no, no, I'm there with you to support you to overcome that thing that I take and I open my mind and point to do. That's my responsibility. Mm. So those four steps could be dis described as the four steps for constructive criticism, so to say. And this is not apparat. Of course, again, apparat can be there. We should be careful about that. We are not minimizing that here. But sharing, again, some effect, objective fact that requires change with good intention is not apparat. Prabhupada will say to call a thief, thief. That's not wrong. So apparat, again, Aparat can mean, for example, a Vaishnava did, did not do anything wrong, but I speak bad about that person. That's a form of Aparat. But if the person did something wrong and I speak about that constructively, that's another thing. So you follow the difference. If someone did, did not do something wrong and I speak bad about something that supposedly the person did wrong, that's another thing. Like, Again, scapegoating or character assassination, stuff like that, forms of violence. But to point to that with a constructive heart, with commitment, accompanying the person, that's not a parad. That's, again, totally necessary. Radical personalism is totally about this type of clear and healthy communication of whatever needs to be shared. 
And a similar criteria applies with other forms of variants of apparat. For example, again, as we mentioned, one form of apparat is to physically aggress a Vaishnav. Aggress, you say? Attack a Vaishnav. <coughs> but what if a Vaishnav, not very high one, <laughs> is attacking another Vaishnav, is attacking you as a Vaishnav physically without any reason? Should you allow that to happen? No. So you will be attacking back. So technically this Vaishnava Parad, because you are attacking a Vaishnava, but if the Vaishnava attacked you first, without any reason, that's not Aparad. So you, we, we, should, we should have this type of nuance understanding, because if you say, someone attacked the Vaishnava, that's Aparad. Not necessarily in every case, as we can see. So anyhow, as, as, of course, as, as, as much as someone behaves as a perfect Vaishnava, it will be offensive to to criticize that person with the wrong heart or, or to point to things that are to point at mild mistakes as trying to make them great mistakes or losing sight of the purity of that person. Uh, but if someone behaves as a non-Vaishnava, although it's, it's, that person presents himself, herself as a Vaishnava, and one detects that and one thinks about that and one shares that constructively, that's not apparat. Sorry to repeat the same, to pound, pound the post over and over again, because there's generational neurosis and trauma to be solved in this connection. <laughs> so we need to pound the post a little bit. Mm. And again, if on the other side, in the name of being surrendered and humble, we do not do anything, say anything, look in another, to another direction, that's, that's opening the door for abuse, basically. Mm. Don't be offensive with Maharaj, he's a sannyasi. Don't say anything. No, he's a senior devotee, he's a guru, he's a proper disciple, don't be offensive. No, this type of one-liners that inject intimidation. Hmm? Yeah, and that person may be a senior devotee, but that may be a child abuser also. Senior in terms of external years, but not in terms of behavior. Hmm? So if someone is a senior devotee, but is not behaving as such, pointing to that is not offensive. <laughs> That's the point. It's actually a gesture of care, not only for the victim of that abuser, but for the abuser himself even. Mm. So it's care in all directions, it's not apparat. And of course, sometimes it still comes the argument, a surrendered soul never commits any offense. But in some cases, a surrendered soul may still, as we mentioned, accidentally engage in some, even offense, it can happen. Mm. But Krishna won't take them. Mm. But of course, again, if this fool is surrendered, the heart's in the proper place. And there's one verse in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, 2.138, says, The Supreme Lord, who is pure-hearted by his very nature, does not see the serious offenses of his servant, but he accepts even a little service as a great thing. He does not find fault even in those of low character. So again, this is not, it's not speaking about do whatever abuse you like and Krishna will really like it. So speaking about the sincerity of the servant, how Krishna is biased, divine, transcendentally toward bhakti, but not as an excuse to engage in abuse because Krishna is nonetheless covering for me, covering up for us or something like that. It's more speaking about how God is seeing us unconditionally <laughs> and how we should extend that to others as well. Remember, if He loves me unconditionally, I won't abuse others because he loves me unconditionally. <laughs> he loves me unconditionally, I will love others unconditionally. 
I will extend what I'm receiving. I won't abuse what I'm receiving and abuse others as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Again, and if, if you are really surrendered and read that verse, you won't think, okay, now I, have, I can abuse totally. Krishna is covering up for me. That person will, won't abuse this statement. That person will be humbled and will reflect whatever I need to change. How, how will I change that? Because Krishna is so loving and unconditional. So I will be humbled by that. <clears throat> Radha Madhava also interestingly points that it's interesting to realize that the first demon that Krishna killed was Putana, and Putana represents, according to Bhaktivinoda that each asura represents Amanartha. So Putana represents the false guru. Or by extension, we could say, not to think in white, black and white terms, bona fide, false, we could say something in the guru's character that doesn't represent the Samasti Guru. That could be the, the false Guru, so to say, something that is not representative of the Sri Guru agency. So Putana represents that. Again, not only the false Guru as a complete cheater, so to say, but aspects that can be there on some level. And of course, we, it is said that we cannot get rid of all the other anarchists that other demons will represent if we do not get rid first the, this first one. Mm-hmm which in this case will be our attachment to unfavorable teachers or our incapacity to critically examine them. That's another way to understand kill Putana. Again, it doesn't mean you are a false guru, get out of here. But there may be some aspects of certain people, not only maybe not our guru, someone else. And Putana represents attachment to unfavorable teachers, lack of critical thinking, incapacity to critically examine them. So you cannot go to other anarchists if you don't dealt with that one first. And of course, sometimes the devotees who are advocating this complete ban of criticism in all directions, not to be offensive, themselves are trying to avoid being criticized by others. So that's the way they are trying to do so. Or they are attached in an improper way to others who are trying to avoid that criticism. So anyhow, in, to conclude with this section, and I will say 108th time again constructive criticism is not uh, tantam parallel synonymous with Vaishnava Aparat <clears throat> as we say it's to hate the sin not the sinner no, it's a different there we are pointing to something that needs change we are pointing the person did wrong in something but we are not judging the person as a whole because of what that person did even. If you did something wrong, it's not that you are wrong ontologically as a being, (laughs) but you are opening the door for the person to change and upgrade herself. Basically, that's the idea. It's not that we point to some, we criticize someone with the intention of making them suffer forever. But we hope, again, May you grow, learn your lesson, and continue progressing. That should be the spirit behind this criticism for it to be constructive. So it's important to differentiate between these two. Aparat, constructive criticism. Because if not, we will confuse one with the other. So any criticism is aparat. So we develop this fear or this false sense of diplomacy, and everyone becomes paralyzed and non-critical. We will come falsely humble, as we mentioned, and falsely surrender. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to my bhajan to be disturbed by criticizing anyone. But that will disturb your bhajan, as we will see. And that will open the door, the door for abuse, because you can do anything and nobody will criticize you. 
Mm-hmm. But you may be feeling good with yourself. Well, at least I'm not being offensive. I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm being humble and surrender. No, you're being hypocritical and stupid in that case, basically, you know, to say the least. <laughs> so to take a stance in, in real situations that, that, that we know that they are happening, and we may know that they are happening, of course, it's much more demanding to commit ourselves to that, that remaining like a passive witness, and exhibit a false sense of transcendence. No, I'm not affected. I don't want to criticize. You know, this false sense of superficial harmony. Let's not offend. Let's love each other. Well, in many cases, we're actually evading dealing with the mess in others, with the mess in our community, with our own mess. Uh, without, we are evading. We are escaping the actual work of integration, integration of complexity, and we end up again weaponizing ideas like apparat. So we don't have to be brave enough, so we don't have to be committed enough, so we don't have to be surrendered enough and humble enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all these virtues, again, humility, surrender, can take so many forms. And some of them may be pointing at these things in a constructive way. Mm-hmm. Like Mahaprabhu, when he was tre- dealing with the chant Kasi, or Christ for destroying all this market outside of the bi- of the church, you may say, oh, he was not humble in those moments. No, oh, that was another phase of humility and surrender. So anyhow, some words regarding Aparat and the weaponization of that. Let's go with one last section. Bear with me a few minutes. So in connection to this, the next section will be, if the Guru commits any mistake, it should be acknowledged. Although it sounds common sense but again uncommon common sense in some cases why because nowadays sometimes again we find unfortunately that many many of those who hold the position of guru try to escape criticism they are terrified about that for whatever reason there are many possible reasons they wanted to risk position and fame and benefits of all that so they escape criticism they try to escape apology they try to escape rectification that may be required but the point is that's not the, the, the behavior of it true genuine guru basically that's the opposite of that no? even even a guru or a devotee should apologize in some cases you may unintentionally hurt other people it was not an intention but it happened you should be able to apologize what to speak of intentional mistakes now the famous example is that of Rupa Goswami that he was once in Samadhi, meditating on the Leela and Radha and Krishna were playing, and there was some funny moment, and he laughed. And externally, one crippled person came, and he saw Rupa Goswami laughing, and he felt, oh, he's laughing at my crippledness. He felt bad and left. And Rupa Goswami, his bhajan was interrupted because of that. So he immediately thought, I may have offended or make some bhajan feel uncomfortable. And he looked for the person and begged forgiveness, although it was not his intention. <laughs> So my point is, if a Bajanam is willing to do so, what to speak, if you are actually doing some mistake, how much more you should acknowledge that. And even sometimes gurus, as Radha Mahaprabhu points, like genuine gurus often allow the, pub, to public, the public to witness their own correction in order to set a precedent for the rest of society to promote education and healing on, on a more societal level. It's inspiring. Imagine if you see a senior begging forgiveness in, in a senior-like way, that's inspiring, and, and, and only then you can get a reference reference to how should I do that 
when I do that, when I make a mistake, how to act. If I don't have the reference from a role model from a senior, <laughs> they may think, oh, that's not to be done. So you need a proper example of how to beg forgiveness and so on. So it's a very sad condition sometimes to see in our times rectification is uh, not acknowledged or if it's acknowledged sometimes only because of public pressure because it reached such a level that you just have to you are forced by circumstance and of course that helps because people is informed about what actually happened and everyone can learn from what to do or what not to do in some cases and of course social media we already spoke a lot about social media can be really abused and misused to engage in apparat, unhealthy criticism and gossip of any possible kind. But also sometimes social media can help to point at some of these unrecognized issues and give rise to some nice, deep, mature discussions, interactions and transformation even through online platforms. That's our hope, that's the purpose for us of social media. Because again, if, if it were not be for social media, sometimes some of these abuse or toxic patterns we may never know about them. So, <clears throat> so again, whenever some of these mistakes happen in the case of some Biasti guru, sometimes maybe mild mistake, it doesn't necessarily to be publicly acknowledged if a guru forgot a verse in a class. <laughs> okay, we won't force him to publicly apologize. <laughs> but if it's some grave mistake or something, that, that should be dealt with accordingly. Because if we do not deal with those imperfections for the for the Biasti Gurus, again, the dignity of the infallible Samasti Guru principle may be affected in the eyes of some, in the eyes of us, probably, our faith. If we do not correct Biasti Gurus in time, again, some doubts may arise in relation to every other Guru, to the Samasti Guru principle as a whole. And Krishna Bhajanamrita, a well-known book by Narahari Sarkar, mentions that you should, if a guru is bewildered or deviated, he should be approached for rectification. Initially, privately, to do it in a sober way, but if unfortunately that doesn't happen, it may reach another, another dimension. So of course, it may not be the role of everyone to do that, it's not that here we are advocating go and criticize everyone and speak with and see defects. We are not saying that. But at certain circumstances, even if it's not our role to do that, someone has to do that, at least. And the guru should be open to that as well. And not only seniors, but some cases, I mean, the guru should be open to have seniors. But unfortunately, in some cases, gurus may not have seniors because they themselves are senior, but at least they should have peers or equals with whom they can relate and can hear some feedback because if you get over attached you only have juniors glorifying you that may create some Srila Samaras will call it intoxication of Batsalia just your little kid telling you daddy you are the best you are the best the only one oh yeah say it again I like it so much <laughs> and then a friend comes and talks to you on equal terms oh I don't like that treatment I want to be special always so that's a friendship is a very challenging relationship for our ego to have someone that on equal terms will tell you things plainly without any kijai maybe <laughs> but with love and concern again with affection so it's important that gurus keep those peers in this connection to be informed about any possible shortcomings they may be indulging it so again in conclusion a mature devotee will never 
think that oh, I am exempt from all fault, from all accountability. If you are mature and sincere, you will be more than open to that. A guru will never claim like this holier than thou, you say in English, state or condition. And will try to downplay his mistakes. That's not the idea. No? It's, not, it's not a threat if we correct ourselves. We shouldn't be afraid of exposing ourselves to whatever mistake we may engage in. Actually, it's a symptom of that we are threading the following the footsteps of a genuine guru, those who are willing to acknowledge those things. As we mentioned, remember the, the, the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is our most important scripture, somehow we could say is the outcome of a genuine guru correcting himself. That's Vyasa, recognizing and upgrading. So that's the outcome. The, ba the Bhagavatam is an outcome of that, and Gaudiya Sampraday is an outcome of the Bhagavatam. So we are the outcome of a genuine guru correcting himself. Mm -hmm. Or some other case, famous cases we spoke the other day when Advaitacharya was corrected by, by his little son Achyutananda. Advaitacharya didn't say, I'm your father. No, you can. I, I, I may be wrong, but I, I'm, I may not be right, but I'm always... But I'm never wrong, as they say. <laughs> he never said that. I'm Advaita Acharya. No. He, begged his, he acknowledged that and begged his son forgiveness. When Mahaprabhu, the famous case, he was entering the bathroom and trying to catch, catch his tongue that wanted to continue chanting the name of Krishna, and he thought doing that in the bathroom may be offensive. And there was a little boy called Gopal, and he told Mahaprabhu, you can go to the bathroom and continue chanting. That's not, the name is not affected. It will purify. And Mahaprabhu accepted that, and he glorified the boy and said, you are my guru. Then he was known as Gopal Guru Goswami. Or Srila Prabhupada in his deathbed, as we know, he, he said, please, to his god-brothers, if I wish to ask forgiveness for any offenses I may have committed, I've never intended to offend anyone. So my point is, these great personalities are showing it's possible to hold ourselves accountable, it's needed. And so if we need more examples, maybe that's our example that needs to follow. <laughs> All these examples. So this mature self-correction could be rather Madhava described that in some stages. So I will share some of them. I, I put a little bit less than the ones he shared in his book. And this is quite connected to vulnerability, as we already spoke. Not to have the courage to show up and expose yourself. So he's very. I will mention six steps in this case. He mentions a few more. First. Six mature traits of of self-correction. First, communicate that you welcome friendly criticism throughout your life. You know? Like make a clear statement that you remain open to that. Second, be open to inquiry and remain accountable. If other wants to inquiry, remain accountable for whatever you have done. Three, do not, do not hide mishaps. Confide in peers, seniors, and experts. Four, Apologize without delay and do it publicly if that's required. Five, declare your measurements of self-correction and execute them swiftly. And six, never fear negative consequences of such, such self-correction. Because again, it, it even sets a good example for others. So we shouldn't get paranoid or afraid about that. So anyhow, some words regarding how mistakes should be acknowledged from the side of the guru. <clears throat> and let's just conclude with a few, 
brief words, sorry, about some benefits that we will acquire because of by embracing whatever we have shared today, by embracing this willingness to open ourselves to this possibility of Guru not necessarily being infallible in every sense, omniscient, no fault, and all this type of stuff. So we already mentioned, some brief wrap-up, that the Guru's infallibility is not the same as Krishna's infallibility, that there can be some mild mistakes in the Guru, there can be some grave mistakes in another case, depending on the Adhikar, and each of them need to be properly ascertained with healthy intention, without the neurosis of being an aparadi, by pointing at that. <clears throat> and we mentioned how the Guru in those cases uh, need to accept those mistakes hmm, for the benefit of all. So if we embrace this kind of system, it's not a system, but just common sense relationships, <laughs> way of proceeding, we will be tremendously benefit as individuals and as society. So let me share some of these benefits that again Radhamad Prabhu mentioned in, in his book. I'm summarizing some of them. So one of the benefits can be, I will mention seven of them. First, leaders rectifying their mistakes because they do not fear loss of dignity. And we will we will find that. Leaders rectifying their mistakes because they are not fearing loss of dignity. Second, we will have devotees being able to acknowledge shortcomings of all gurus or leaders without fear of stigmatization. Stigmatization. <laughs> so there will be that freedom also, that peace, so to say. Three, less inner struggles to justify mild mistakes of gurus. No need to justify them. It's okay. They can be there. Four, correcting wrongdoings in the society, knowing that guru does not always know everything and thus does not automatically approve everything. As we gave the example of Prabhupada and the child abuse. Five, being careful not to blindly take sides with seniors against anyone or any notion, knowing that one's seniors may have been wrong. <clears throat> Six, supporting those who correctly and without envy discuss one's seniors' errors so that rectification and healing can happen. So again, this is a lot about healing. It's not just about rectification. And finally, seven, Keeping faith in one's gurus or acharyas, even after discovering mild shortcomings. In other words, giving place to a mature, a more accommodating type of faith that can integrate and allow imperfection even to nourish the equation. So anyhow, some words I want to share today in connection to the topic of if Sri Guru is fallible or infallible. Again, special thanks to Radha Madhav Prabhu for allowing me to, to share some of these topics and inspiring us with that particular book that I've referred to repeatedly today. And uh, let's share some homework before finishing, if you will like, which will be basically be to reflect reflect of what can be improved in your local situation, whether as an individual or in your community, in relation to what we talked today. And again, take the necessary action for that to happen. So next Tuesday, we will be seeing ourselves for the third part of this seven-part series on Guru Tattva, and the next topic will be the absolute and relative sides of Sri Guru, which, again, somehow is quite connected to what we have been talking today. Sri Guru Tattva Ki Jai, Sri Man Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Sri Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Gaudiya Sampradaya Ki Jai, 
गौड़ भक्त वृंद की जाए गौड़ प्रमानंद कल्पतरुभ्य कृपा सिंधुभ्यतीतानम पवानेभ्यो वैष्णवेभ्यो नमो नम अनाकोतिवैष्णव वृंद की जाय गौड़ हरि बो